Welcome back. Welcome home. Welcome to the party. Welcome to the revolution. I am your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, and this is the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. Today's guest, my buddy Ben Goreski. This dude is a men's coach. He is an addiction recovery specialist. He does retreats and workshops. He has a podcast. You can find him on the internet at Evolving Man. And he has a really fascinating past. He was in rehab as a teenager. He was addicted to drugs and alcohol when he was around 13. He talks about his siblings and his relationships with his family, what ended up causing him to lash out in school, to get in trouble, and also how he had a spiritual awakening in rehab that ended up putting him on a path to purpose. He's used his pain and turned that into passion, and it fuels everything that he does, how he lives, We talk a little bit also about magic mushrooms and using drugs as medicine to heal. We talk about the therapy around those things. It's a really interesting episode. He's a good dude, and he really opens up about his past and and how he's healed from it. I think you're going to dig it. Enjoy. He's just a Goreski on this side. Gorooch. Mm-hmm. Benjamin Gorush. <laughs> ben Goreski. Welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for having me on, man. Dude, so we're going to jam about all things you, life. It's all about me. Addiction, recovery, forgiveness. For those that don't know you, like, what's your deal? Who are you? What do you, what do, you do here in, in the planet? Yeah. Uh, I wish it was really easy to describe. I'm like, I only did one thing, but... <laughs> I do. I do a lot of things. I'm a 35-year-old man. I live in Vancouver. I am a addiction recovery coach and a men's work uh, leader. I run men's groups in Vancouver here uh, for an organization called the Samurai Brotherhood. I have my own personal brand, um, Evolving Man, and I have a podcast, the Evolving Man podcast. And my main mission on the planet is to help people heal, help people connect to themselves, to connect to other people. And yeah, some of my specialties are um, addiction recovery stuff. Like I, I've been involved with addiction recovery since I was a kid because I went through rehab when I was a teenager and came from a uh, tumultuous home. Not the worst place to grow up, but it did result in me landing in rehab. Um, and so then I became an addictions counselor. And, and so I've been doing that for pretty much my whole adult life. And um, I, I, I'm just like kind of like a life hacker and I just I do all kinds of stuff. But mostly it's like right now it's men's work and uh, addiction recovery stuff. So when you say life hacker, are you like a Dave Asprey kind of dude? I'm not a Dave Asprey, but but I definitely listen to his show. And like, yeah, I'm like saunaing and cold dunking and I'm drinking bulletproof coffee and, and like I'm listening to Rhonda Patrick and like yeah. trying to figure out health all the time and optimize, optimize. And, um, and so I guess for those that yeah. don't know um, who Dave Asprey is, maybe what does that mean, optimize or experimentation? Or... Okay, so Dave Asprey is this guy who he actually lives over on Vancouver Island and he, um, I'd, I'd say he's 10 years older than us. Um, and he got involved in the online space pretty early and made some money there. And But he was very unhealthy. Like he was like 300 pounds. 
And he went down this rabbit hole doing research, trying to figure out how to lose the weight and get healthy. And he did a very intense fasting regimen where he basically ate no food and and uh, took a certain number of supplements to make sure that his uh, body stayed healthy. And he he lost all this weight and he got healthy and he just kept going down that rabbit hole and finding what wasn't being talked about in health and um, started talking about it. Started going on podcasts and he went on Joe Rogan and, and he created this, um, he had a massive issue with mold actually where um, he had to be uh, taken out of his house and like the hazmat suits went into his house and cleaned it out oh, shit. and he was super messed up for uh, a while and he would react to mold everywhere and he started to notice that there was mold in foods like peanuts and coffee and certain places and so he he started researching that and and um, unearthing that for people and he created a, a, a coffee that he claims to be mold free and so yeah he's he's the, he's like a tim ferris type who's just like always looking for what the next edge is and he's not a doctor neither is tim ferris but these guys are just like they're very well read yeah they read the studies they read the science and then they just go play on their bodies yeah i love them and uh, I, I love that I, I idolize them i i just like i like that way of living and yeah. um the the idea that like Oh, well, I'm not an expert, so like I guess I don't know anything. Like they yeah. take the opposite approach. They're like, "Well, I'm just gonna like figure it out." It's 2019. Like, yeah. like <laughs> somewhat to the extreme as well. Like, yeah, like Tim Ferriss flew to Africa and had a chunk of muscle taken out of his thigh, yeah, so they could analyze his fibers. And my girlfriend's reading uh, Dave Astry's new book, and she we were in bed maybe like a day or two, and she starts giggling. I'm like, "What are you? What are you laughing at?" And she said that he took stem cells and injected them into his penis. Oh, yeah. To, to try to, I didn't get the full story, but it made it 15% bigger yeah. and his sex life was better. Yeah. So this is the kind of stuff that he does. Yeah. That, um, that's a bit of an extreme way to live, most would say. But like the day-to-day -day stuff about cold showers, coffees, what you ingest, how you think, etc. is super powerful. Yeah. And it's like all these these guys start revolutions yeah you know like there's millions of people drinking the bulletproof mm. style of coffee and i guess 10 years from now there's going to be millions of people injecting stem cells into their yeah. penises like, I, I mean we need to start a business i'm thinking about it right now <laughs> what would that feel like and not good his partner did it in her clitoris wow yeah why not hey so, like if you're a biohacker like, like let's partners go. who inject cells in their junk together stay together yeah. right <laughs> that's your next instagram meme yeah. yeah um okay hang on so back on track uh you said you were in rehab as a teenager you had a somewhat tumultuous childhood that has then led you to your kind of life's purpose mm -hmm. to use that phrase yeah. yeah how did that happen or talk to me about that experience <sighs> so I have two older brothers, one who's three years older, one who's 10 years older. So he's, he was like kind of pretty far removed from the family or from my experience of, of growing up. He left the house when he was 16 and went to live with his dad. He was a stepbrother or a, or a half brother, not a stepbrother, half brother. Um, his, his dad lived in Toronto. So he went to Toronto and I mostly grew up with this other brother, two great parents, um, 
my dad was a pediatric anesthetist, so he like helps put kids to sleep and up and uh, maintain their condition while they're being operated on in the operating room. And my mom was a, she worked sometimes in the hospital, um, and sometimes she just she took some time to just stay at home and raise the kids. Um, my older brother was like a tormented child. He's like. I think he had a very overactive uh, brain in certain areas, um, had ADHD symptoms, um, lots of anger. Um, there's a, a doctor named Dr. Daniel Amen who uh, does SPECT scans of the brain and he, he, it's those colorful maps that you see of the brain. And he's done more SPECT scans on people probably than anybody. And he's, he identified certain patterns in ADHD kids and that he thinks there's actually seven types based on the brain patterns and where the um, activity is in the brain. There's seven different types. And there's one of them that's like characterized by anger, just like constant um, cantankerousness. And my brother was very much that. Um, he also, yeah. And there was a lot of jealousy between him and I he, because he was like in trouble more and I was a little more stable. He took out a lot of, a lot of anger on me. And so I kind of lived my childhood in his shadow and trying not to get hurt. Also trying to get some attention, you know, from my parents because he was taking all, up all the space in the house. And my parents spent all their time trying to like figure out what's going on with him, putting him in private schools or as he got older, like he was getting kicked out of the house for his behavior, abusive behavior, and, and, and then ending up in jail for assaulting people and, and ended up in um, group homes and and became a ward of the government when he was 16. My parents were like, I don't know, we don't know what to do with this guy. Like, so that's, that's sort of the place that I grew up. Other than that, it was like suburbia, Calgary, like should be the setting for a, for a fairly normal childhood. Um, and I started acting out in school and like just getting attention and, and like being kind of a trickster and playing jokes on teachers and, and just trying to get energy out from grade two. And so I was getting kicked out of class or getting like a special seat, like right next to the teacher's desk and special seat. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, I need to keep my eye on you from right here. Mm. And, and things just kind of like got worse there. Like at home I would sort of hide and at school I would act out. And in grade six, I got suspended three or four times. Um, grade seven I got expelled from my new school that I had my parents decided to put me in a private school and I got expelled within you know seven or eight months and and what'd you get expelled for I don't even remember I think I like I definitely insulted the teachers a few times um I didn't get any fist fights there it was definitely just like disrespect for the authority there they had, they were pretty strict school my parents were like oh let's put him somewhere strict like they'll right. shape him up it's like break his spirit and it get him conforming it did the opposite yeah they and they didn't want to like break my spirit but they just wanted to con they wanted me to get under control i was mm. i lived my whole childhood basically in behavior contracts you know um and i have a lot of energy naturally but i had no idea where to put it and i didn't have a good role model as a brother and my dad was working a lot. And so there was, there was no guide for like mm. how to be in the world, you know, and I didn't have any other mentors and that piece right there, most men can relate to. Right. Which is why I now align so much with men's work. So, um, 
Yeah, basically, I found drugs when I was like 14. I, I found cannabis and alcohol. And I was like, wow, I had heard that my brother was using drugs, quote, and had told myself like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll never do that because I see what it seems to be hurting him and the family. But then I tried them and I was like, oh, wow, this takes away like this feeling of not okayness that I have all the time. Mm. And at the time, were you recognizing it as a feeling of not okayness or were you just like a punk kid who was? Yeah, no, it's like at that age, like you don't know what's happening inside of you. So it was like, I didn't. I didn't have that story like, oh, okay, this takes away my pain, so I'm going to use it. But I had the story of, I'm going to do this every day. Mm. I had that. I remember that. Like, this is fun and different. And <laughs> yeah. I feel good now. Right. I did have that. So, yeah, then I just, you know, used cannabis every day and alcohol every day. And um, cannabis especially has this way of, like, for some people, for me, uh, of, like, bringing up like if you have shame, it like kind of brings it up more or social anxiety, Mm. it brings it up more. And so like I was smoking pot to escape and then I was, it, it, it made me so clumsy and klutzy and like not good with words. And, um, so it, it kind of like made me more of a loser in school, right? Like it turned me into like a dumb insecure pothead and I saw that in myself and so like I started to build shame about where I was at and Mm. but then I would just smoke more to escape and it it just didn't it really didn't work it's like a classic cycle right yeah I feel bad so I do this thing to feel good but when I do that thing it makes me feel worse yeah so then I do it more yep lather rinse repeat yep and it happens with sex, it happens with masturbation, it happens with mm. um, video games, sitting on the couch, doing nothing. Like, I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. Like, um, any kind of distraction or escapism, right? That yeah. helps you to not feel the things that you are feeling. Yeah. So, my brother ends up in rehab in this like intense rehab center that they're like, Hey, we're the last house on the block. Like, don't bring your kid here unless you're absolutely hopeless because it's a residential treatment center and we're taking your kid for a year. Oh, shit. So he he gets signed into this place when he's 17 and turns 18 in there. And so then their eye is on me because I'm living in the home. And Who's I? Your The treatment center staff. Uh, like your next kind of thing? Or? Yeah, well, yeah, because in this place one of the ways that they cut costs like most treatment centers like if you want to go to edgewood on vancouver island it's a great treatment center but it's like 400 bucks a day at least oh yeah so a month of rehab is very expensive they cut costs at this rehab center by having peer counselors which are not paid as high as like clinical staff they have some clinical staff but and instead of having the kids sleep at the center they go home to the parents home so basically when you're farther along you 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 go home and and then you start taking kids into your home so for the first half of treatment you're going to other kids homes so the parents come and they pick the kids up at the end of the night Mm. so you're at the treatment center all day and then the parents come and they're like okay ben you're sleeping at jeremy's house tonight and cole you're with ben and uh, the parents are here off you guys go 
and they send you home. So you're at a different house every night, but it's like the homes are all set up so that they're like kind of like a jail. Like the locks are turned around. There's bars on the windows uh, right. because you're kind of there against your will. And, and you have a history or a pattern of being unruly or yeah and you're in laws and shit and you're in with all these other kids who have been to jail and like yeah. they're also drug addicts right so it's like there's always drama there for sure there's always drama in that treatment center but they they had a program that actually worked it it was not without its flaws and like there's some controversy about this place you know and there are abuses of power that happen there but they had this like peer counseling model where like the people the counselors who worked there had been through treatment and were in recovery and they were great and they they actually care and they spend mm -hmm. all day with you trying to help you see through your own bullshit and so i spent a year there um i, I so you you did after your brother you yeah, ended up going there sorry i skipped that so yeah my brother ends up in there i'm still using and i'm running away from home from time to time they wanted us to come and do a uh like I was a sibling at the time, and they were like, we're gonna do a group family therapy session on New Year's Eve 2000. And I was like, I'm not going to that. Like, <laughs> I'm 15 and I'm partying. Right. Like, this is the millennium, guys. <laughs> this is the biggest party of your life to that point. Yeah. And my parents were like, well, we're going, and if you don't come, like, you can't be in the house. Because mm. we're getting ready to take kids home. All right. right? and the home's got to be clean so they were they were starting to ramp up the the pressure yeah and i was like well i guess i'm leaving then and i packed my bags i went to a party and and then i sort of like slept in friends basements for two weeks and ended up in a group home and then when i wanted to come home i was like parents i want to come home now they were like you got to go for an assessment at arc to see if you're an addict and i was like no problem let's go and i went they drug tested me they asked me all these questions. They were like, okay, A, your assessment says that you're lying. And B, the drug test says that you're high right now. So you told us that you hadn't used since New Year's. You're staying. So I stayed. And mm. I was not like, at the time, did you think like, I'm totally going to pass this. They can't tell that I'm lying. <laughs> yeah. You just I was just that so cocky, in denial. Punk kid. Yeah. I was, yeah. I'll just show up high. It's not a big Stupid. deal. Stupid. Yeah. So... Yeah, I'd been used to just saying, just giving my finger to the system right. for my whole life, you know. And, and now the system's like, hey, bro, check out these facts. Yeah, we're in charge now. <laughs> yeah. <yet. laughs> you're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. So that would yeah, be confronting. They make you strip and you take a shower and, and like you have to clean, you have to take, use this stuff called nicks to clean lice out of your hair so you don't bring it in. And, mm -hmm. and it's kind of like a jail in the middle of the city. And of all the guys in there like i was certainly not the worst like there was there was people in there who were like 17 18 19 and like smoking crack stealing cars and injecting heroin you know mm. and so how did it feel to be around those kind of people well there was a part of me that wanted to like go back out and like use a whole bunch more so that i could like match up with them mm. you know and they would make fun of me they'd be like you smoked pot twice and ended up in rehab you know mm. um so even in there like you weren't good enough or like your status was <laughs> low yeah, right? exactly yeah and there's like all this posturing that goes on you know it's like 
I mean, half these kids have been to jail, so there's like a, a big jail mentality too, mm. which they're trying to undo in there, you know. But so that came up, but like, yeah, I stayed and I realized my pain. That's the main thing. Is like, for the first four months, all I did was just waste time in there. I didn't do anything. I just, I was a behavior issue and I went nowhere. Just like had your walls up. Yeah. And then slowly I started to relate to other kids' stories. And I started to connect with the pain of my existence and that I really felt so lost and so hurting. And, and I connected with that piece that was there all along, you know. And my brother got kicked out of treatment shortly after I came in. He was an adult. So when he started breaking the rules, they were like, you're out. And he wasn't progressing either. He wasn't mm. like he was in there for a year and like stalled. So I imagine when I was still stalled out for the first four months, my parents were like, wow, our kids are screwed. Right. <laughs> but I started to break through and, and, and they take you through all 12 steps there. Mm -hmm. 12 steps of AA or, uh, they're all the same. AANA. So, um, yeah, then I, I, I moved through and I had a spiritual awakening, spiritual experience. And um, while you were in treatment. Yeah, like I would say that that my step one day where I was like presenting for my step one, they get you to sit on a stool and talk about the step you're working on. And when they really believe that you've got it, you move on. Cause, and they all know because they've done it. Right. That's that's the key with the peer counseling. They like, can see right through your shit. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I just like when I fully surrendered to the pain of my existence and just like broke down, they're like, okay, that's, that's it. That's step one. You know, you're surrendering, you know? Hmm. And so then you carry that with you into the next steps. Like, okay, from this place of being like, I'm totally defeated I'm, and I surrender and I can't do this on my own anymore. Step two is I need help. And you just, you just focus on that for a couple of weeks. Like, what does it mean to need help and to ask for help? Mm. And I had a large resistance to that too, asking for help. So it's the stories around it being like, that you're not good enough or that you're a failure, that asking for help is a weakness. Yeah. Or... Just pride. Mm. It was, it was pride. And so I learned some lessons there where like I got held back because I wasn't willing to ask for help. And they're like, you're on the step where you're supposed to ask for help and you just blew it, man. Like we tested you and you didn't ask for help, you know? And yeah, like shit. Yeah. <laughs> Sneaky. God, so that's another seven days on this. Okay. But I never forgot it. Like I'm still yeah. talking about it now, 20 mm -hmm. years ago. So yeah, like it was like the steps, if you could sum it up, it's like, I can't, I'm screwed on my own. I need help. Step three is, okay, I'm going to take the help and I'm committing to do that. I'm committing to do the rest of whatever help means. Step four is you write down all the bad shit you've ever done and all of the, the bad thoughts you've ever had, basically, about other people. Mm. And step five is you talk about your entire life story and all of your harms that you've done to anyone and yourself with another person. And step six and seven, you study your core, call it... Uh, moral failings or like you know selfishness uh inconsiderateness dishonesty self-centeredness that kind of stuff you you look at those and you identify them and you like 
you ask the universe to help you remove those things and change them. Mm. Um, and then step eight and nine, you clear your past, um, like and make actual amends to people. Step 10, you learn how to take a daily inventory. Step 11, you focus on your spiritual connection. And step 12, you step into service and give back. So yeah, I spent 13 months in there. And, and then I got out, I went to, I finished high school, which was difficult because um, they had counted that year against me in, in school, in treatment. So I lost a year. So I had like a year and a half to do all my core subjects. <laughs> But I did it. I, I, not without issue though. Like I still was struggling to live life on life's terms. I was still a teenager and like, I was also labeled as a troubled kid in school. So I, I had to go to these like special classes. Imagine did all your peers know that like, oh, there's Ben Korsky, he went to rehab, the bad kid or whatever. Yeah. They knew stigma or energy. They knew I had went to rehab, but, um, there wasn't too much of a, deal about it yeah yeah it was it was not too bad i think the the kids at that school were pretty accepting and like i did join like halfway through a grade and so it was like hard to Mm. get in there with certain people but um i was used to that i'd done that multiple times with multiple other schools right and i i i did sort of like i was a behavioral idiot sometimes in class so i got kicked out of class once and then the the principal called my mom in I walk into the principal's office, my mom's sitting there and he's like, you got kicked out of class. I'm suspending you for three days. And I flipped out on him and he suspended me for five days. Why did you flip out? I was so mad that he was suspending me for like a tiny thing in class Mm. where like these other kids were like equally as rambunctious, Mm. but I was like labeled as a troublemaker. So they were like going to make an example out of me or like, they're going to cut me off earlier. They noticed me. Right. And I was pissed that I was like the, the chosen one. Mm. Was it a, an act on his part to kind of stop you from going down that slippery slope, so to speak? Yeah. Like, Hey, you did that minor thing. So we need to drop the boom so that you don't go down that path again. Yeah. He was just dropping the hammer and, and trying to do what he could to, like prevent, save, save you or whatever yeah prevent me prevent the backward slide you know he knew i'd been to rehab so he was like okay i gotta be vigilant with this guy mm. and but at the time you're just like fuck you man this yeah is bullshit i was mad at my mom too i gave my mom the finger and told her to fuck off after that so that was a rough point and i had a number of other rough points but i got through school and i upgraded and i went and worked at that treatment center as a peer counselor and i did that for four years Wow. And that's when I realized I liked carrying the message, so to speak. Mm. And that wasn't without issue either. Like I almost got fired twice there. I got in a fist fight with my supervisor and my, the boss of the treatment center broke up the fist fight in the office, like in the team, the the team office. Mm. And, uh, and another time, like one of the, one of the clinical counselors, basically made a decision to one of the staff her her aunt had just died and the um clinical counselor said like hey you should you should come in so we can support you here because it was a very supportive environment Mm. and 
And I felt like she was using her power incorrectly and not giving the girl, the woman, the option not to come to work All right. and to go be with her family. And uh, th- it's the truth is those types of things were murky there because like mm. she had used to been this, she had been this girl's counselor and now she was a woman working there as an employee. And sometimes the clinical staff would treat the peer counselors like they mm. were still in treatment rather than like paid employees. Right. So anyhow, regardless of whether it was right or wrong, I was like, this is wrong. I'm going to be a hero and stand up for her. And I like pretty much started a mutiny on the staff team. And mm. I can't believe they didn't fire me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's like my style, you know, I yeah. just like, I'm kind of a firecracker and I get in trouble like that. But there's also, I think a, uh, like an intellect to that. Right. I mean, you're a smart dude. You manipulation, I think, requires intelligence. Yeah, you know what I mean, and to strategize and all of that, and mm. so it's almost like a an underlying compliment to yourself. Like people that start mutinies, like they're smart. Like, yeah, they, and they that, know what's going on. They can judge people. They can poke buttons. They can tease out strategies and whatnot. Yeah, and I think that the 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 leader in me was emerging while I was working there. But I was still very young, and I didn't mm. know when the leader in you is emerging but you're not really willing to like hold it and like take responsibility for it you mm-hmm. cause shit in the world and and you don't see it coming you don't own it so um that's kind of what was going on and, and i did learn some lessons there where i was like oh wow i got people really riled up and like i need to be careful of how i do that in my life and also this is like a gift that if i embrace it fully like I can I can really do some things in the world. So, mm. yeah, that that was one of many lessons of learning how to be. Yeah, yeah. And so, when you said earlier that you had a spiritual awakening inside of rehab, was there a defining moment or experience, or was it more like a slow burn to understanding and awareness? Yeah, the awakening is more of a slow burn. Um, at least this is how they describe it in the back of the AA book. The, they call it the big book. Um, they they distinguish between what a spiritual experience is versus an awakening. Like an experience is like you feel a connection to spirit in that moment. Like, you know, you take mushrooms, you're going to have a spiritual experience probably or ayahuasca or um, this uh, experience of Satori or um, a Kundalini awakening. Like those are spiritual experiences, but the awakening is more of like, yeah, it's like a slow burn. Um, I did have multiple experiences in there where I was like, like I described the step one experience and like in step two, I like, I, I had this one experience where every Tuesday night there's lots of energy in the room. Uh, the parents came in and did like a parents therapy session and they would cram all of the clients into this tiny room while we were waiting to do, um, this thing called talks. And that is when I would always misbehave because it was just like, I have like a, what's called a reflector energy where I like sort of just bounce. I reflect the energy of the room. And so when there's lots of action, I get excited yeah. <laughs> like a chihuahua. So I didn't, I, every time I would act out and I would get in trouble and I knew that that would sabotage my whole week. So I was trying to learn how to like behave a certain way and like stay within the rules and this one day I prayed and like asked 
something to help me calm myself down and not act out in the same way. And at that moment, this like calm washed over me and I did not act out. And I was like, what? (laughs) And that was my first experience of like, asking for something to be given to me and then it just like happening in my body and and i was like okay there's something to this thing you know i wasn't just like oh there's a god and he just gave me calm but Mm. i was like if you ask sometimes you shall receive not always but Mm. like there's there's a there's some kind of exchange going on here and and so that was part of the spiritual awakening as well it's almost like a recognition of an additional um, additional trait of power or something like mm-hmm. a different kind of power. Yeah. Um, and I've had these moments too, where I kind of reflect and think, Oh, I just did that. Like I made that dream into a memory. Like what yeah. else is possible? Yeah. Like, what else can I do? Right. Mm-hmm. And so you perhaps had that moment of calm. And then I imagine the, the giddy teenager version of you is like okay like yeah let's play like what other spells can i cast inside yeah exactly it's a first encounter with the magician i guess the magician yeah yeah do you want to unpack that yeah yeah so one one thing i'm kind of stoked on lately is this uh, king warrior magician lover thing um this guy these guys douglas moore and something gillette douglas gillette and something more anyways it's moore and gillette is their last names they wrote a book in like the early 90s or the late 80s called king warrior magician lover it's based on the fact that on the undercurrent of all human personality there are patterns that emerge and um carl jung called uh called these archetypes that there are um, certain human characteristics that come to the surface and and they interact with each other and they sort of create a balance and so like you have a you have a hero and you like in every movie you've got like the good guy and the bad guy for mm. instance right but that can be broken down into multiple categories as well and there's also guys that are a little it's not so easy to divide into good and bad but um, so what these guys did was they they looked at four major um archetypes in the male psyche and that is the king the warrior the magician and the lover and then all guys have all of these in them but some of them are stronger than others you have you might have more energy in one than another um and the unconscious expression or the shadow expression of each of those archetypes looks a certain way so with the king you have the shadow side of the king energy is the uh, grandstander bully so just think donald trump uh or the oh i can't remember what the other side is but there's like there's an overexpressed side and an underexpressed side in each of them and so like when i said magician it's like using power for good or evil in a very simplistic Uh way is that right yeah like the magician in you is is the magician in a man is 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 the the man who understands the chess game of life and is very it's almost like the intellectual and who Mm -hmm. the guy who likes to see how all the pieces work in the world and and studies the deeper layers 
of that. So even, like shamanism even fits into the magician. So we see the magician in movies. Um, who, what's his name uh, in Lord of the Rings? Gandalf. Oh, yeah. Right? The wizard um, or any sort of uh, medicine man. Even like Neo becomes like a magician in the end, right? He sees through the matrix. Mm. Um, and so every guy has this in him. But, but the shadow side of the magician, when you don't want to embrace the the conscious good side of the magician it can become the trickster so like think the joker the manipulator the guy who sees the world and understands the world but has a little bit of a darker more sinister uh, he's gonna like use his knowledge to hurt others rather like than the, help like the cult leader the uh-huh. passive aggressive narcissist manipulator mm-hmm. is that fair yep Okay. So that's that's like the one of the darker sides of the magician. So each of these has a dark side. Right. And uh, so yeah, I'm just so stoked. I'd listened to the audiobook the other day and I'm just really stoked. I'm I'm studying it with my online men's group and yeah. um, it's just like cool to see like what sides of you like when you see, oh, okay, this is a shadow side of the magician, like where does that show up in my life? Mm. And I realized like I was a, a trickster for my whole childhood. Mm. Like I was like the, the child version of the Joker for my whole childhood. Yeah. It was just like, I was really curious about the world and like curious about other people and like psyche and, and learning how people tick, but I just kind of wanted to fuck with them, mm. you know? Yeah. I've realized years ago that sarcasm was a protection mechanism uh-huh. to like avoid being seen. And I had kind of had this little epiphany myself of like, Oh shit. Like, I'm hiding. I'm using my intellect and humor and wit. Like, for good, I'm telling myself it's for good because it makes people laugh and it connects and I get power from that and, and prestige in my own little way. But also from the shadow side, it's like, I'm not being seen. I don't feel confident. I'm not being honest. Mm-hmm. It's manipulative. Mm-hmm. So that, from my own experience, is one example of having these little epiphanies that are informative and can guide you towards more work or um, becoming a better version of yourself, loving yourself more, accepting yourself more. Yeah. Is that how you view it as well or yeah. different take? Yeah. Like my, one of the things I see in my own sarcasm is that it's often like I'm talking to someone like I think they're stupid, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm, I'm subtly in the background making myself better than them and smarter than them. And I'm talking to them like they're stupid. Mm. and that's that's where a lot of my sarcasm comes from and it of course comes out in my closest relationships like with my wife uh, or my best friend how does she enjoy that she doesn't enjoy it very much i imagine (laughs) knowing her i imagine she doesn't necessarily tolerate it as well no it and things end up bad pretty quickly Yeah. yeah and yeah so being able to see that really helps and just knowing like okay anytime i'm being sarcastic i'm avoiding like what you said like i'm avoiding saying what's really going on like Mm. oh i'm being sarcastic right now because what you said actually hurt my feelings or i feel Mm. stupid i feel like you think i'm stupid so now i'm gonna be sarcastic yeah you know yes i'm gonna go over the top and make you feel stupid so that i don't feel stupid yeah and then it's a cycle yeah we have we love this this video there's a there's a really funny video where these this couple is hanging out and they're talking about their entire dialogue is um what's really going on and so so you know they're standing outside and she's like looking at at something and she's like 
looking at tree and making comment about how beautiful it is. And then he says like, ah, pandering to your love for trees, even though I don't give a shit. She's like (laughs) acknowledging that you're pandering to me, but not speaking about it. And and then they show like the conflict, like making snide comment to try to hurt your feelings, but pretending I'm not and just goes on and on. Yeah, the like psychologist version of an exchange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really good. But this becomes the work, right? Where we all, I mean, we're all on the path of greater understanding and trying to figure out who the hell we are, trying to figure out why we do the things we do. And it sounds like now that is more of your purpose with the coaching and the men's work that you do. Yeah. Is that and, fair? Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I have. You could say I've more stepped into the magician now and um, I'm studying a lot of different things like um, plant medicines even. So like I'm getting into the shamanism world. I don't want to be a shaman, but I'm like, I'm spending time there and learning about um, learning about that because that was instrumental in my healing. And what, what aspect of specifically? Like- so basically, long story short, I spent 15 years totally clean and sober other than drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes from time to time. I was sort of on off smoker until I was about 30. Um, but nothing else, no alcohol, no cannabis, nothing. 15 years. Yeah. And then I stopped going to meetings and was like, I'm going to nurture my spiritual connection in other ways around the time I moved here. And that went pretty well. Um, and I, I I was like, I'm drawn to like one of the last places that I haven't encountered, uh, that I haven't explored yet, which is psychedelics because I'd been told that that's a relapse. Mm. And I started talking to people about it and like thinking about it for a few years. I was listening to Joe Rogan and like Aubrey Marcus. And and I was like, you know, because there's a very popular part of the culture, pop culture, you know, as they say. That is like mm-hmm. microdosing and using um, drugs as medicine. So there's yeah. this gigantic global paradigm shift underway. Yeah, that's like happening. It's a thing now, and it's, it's growing. They're so, using LSD um, to treat PTSD and depression. It, yeah. They're studying at Johns Hopkins. There's big million dollar grants. Like, yeah. there's a transition underway that's changing the the paradigm, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. So you're seeing this, and you're like, huh, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. And so I asked a friend to take me on a mushroom trip and just before my 30th birthday mm-hmm. and he, he took me out and we went to this beautiful spot and, um, I had, yeah, what felt like a really powerful spiritual experience. And I was like, Oh, this isn't like, this is like medicine for me. Like there's no, there's nothing in me here that's saying like, this is taking away my pain or like the addicted cravings it's helping me run from anything. Like it's moving me towards anything that I want to move towards and it's opening things up in me so that I can heal them and see them. And so I felt drawn to ayahuasca and I found that in my life, uh, after some searching a few months of that. And, and that was tremendously healing after that. I was like, okay, I'm never, going to be an addict again like because i like you know that in your soul yeah because i i understood where i was really at and that i had been just living in fear and that it also was tremendously healing and and i was like i don't know how i could 
hurt myself like I was when I was using ever again now that I am that I feel healed in in a, in a way and I had done I had done a ton of work up to that point right so it was like a cherry on top you know but the main thing was this like acknowledgement that I had sort of reached a, a certain point you know and in AA or 12-step programs you're supposed to never acknowledge that it's like very arrogant and you're just asking for relapse to even acknowledge something like that mm. but I that's where I was at and so and I think the the reason they do that is perhaps because oftentimes and I'm projecting my own ideas here and my own life experiences but oftentimes the ego is like no I'm good yeah exactly. I'm ready I'm done and so for the vast majority of people it's like no you're not yeah that's a story you're mm-hmm. not actually in your bones and your soul ready stay home I feel like you're you're like no no like I'm really ready yeah there's a place you that's the thing it's an attempt at making someone stay humble and it's right. very good you should stay humble but yeah. there is a way to go to this like i am never going back and i'm humble about and that. to be humble yeah <laughs> exactly but that's the trick like that's like the the phd level of of self-awareness yeah. in a way right yeah yeah so yes yeah, so, and i knew gabor mate was working with this stuff too yeah and 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 i had been i had been following him for a while already and and so after i did that i was like okay i get it i get why this guy's doing this so from there i've i've participated in these ceremonies from time to time for the last like five years in like a medical setting or uh in this area in a like yeah in a ceremonial setting okay um which you know is like still questionable uh legally so um Let's just say I was in another country, okay? Yeah. Yeah. I did go to Peru, actually. I went to Peru a couple of years ago and went down in the jungle for three three weeks for a deep study. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah. I think to, to, sorry to interrupt, but I think we should provide the necessary asterisk slash caveat around these medicines that they're extremely powerful. It's not a party drug. They're not for everybody. Yeah, man. Don't do them unless you're a million percent called to do them. Telling my own well, story here, people. Yeah. What would you add to that? Because um, I've talked to some people that have done ayahuasca journeys and experiences, and their takeaway is like, "Oh, I actually don't need to do any more chemicals ever because I'm fully equipped and I'm yeah, I have everything I need and I love myself." Yeah, like that's a pretty good takeaway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right? But like, what, we have a culture of like dabblers right now. There's a lot right. of dabbling going on. People just like want to try stuff, and, and it's the we cool have, thing to do now. I feel yeah, we have a commodified culture, and people just like. They just roll into things with no knowledge of how to do it, no prep. And actually what I really like about the ayahuasca thing is um, you're just asking for trouble. If you just walk in there blind and take some, you need to prepare your body and your diet for three three days at least beforehand and eat very clean. And that diet in itself is a huge sacrifice. On top of that, it's almost never cheap to do. So there's like, there's this barrier to entry and so that's a good thing but on top of that yeah like people need to know that it's no joke and that it's like it's definitely the most intense thing i've ever done um and so yeah it needs to be approached with caution for sure and that's why i took two years to think about doing it Mm. initially um but any psychedelics for that matter like i don't know how many people listening to this have had a bad trip quote 
on a psychedelic, but like there's a lot of people who have, and the reason you experience a, a bad trip is because uh, you're not adequately prepared for what you're experiencing. And that might be because of your environment, because you decided to take four grams of mushrooms at a party, a house party, or that your mind isn't prepared, that you weren't, you don't feel safe, right? Or you didn't really know what you're getting into. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to do a show on this soon, a podcast on this soon, because there's so many people that are asking me, mm. like, Hey, how do I prepare for this? Or like, I have this opportunity. Should I do it? And I'm like, well, do you know the person? Like, are you just going to go there and show up and, and like, do you know their history? Like who trained them? You know? And why are you doing it? Yeah. Like, do you feel called to do it? Yeah. It doesn't matter if yeah i think so this stuff's like yeah it's all very important um and so i as i've moved through that journey i've realized like okay um i can actually integrate this stuff with my addiction coaching work and Mm -hmm. so i don't i don't i generally don't take guys who are like early in recovery but i do take small groups of people to um undisclosed locations let's say and we do retreats and I found for myself that psychedelics were very useful for second stage recovery, which is like this sort of next level of healing, right? First stage mm-hmm. is like getting your life in order. But second stage is like really dropping into the healing space and, and healing some stuff that was like there since childhood or since birth, maybe. And um, so I, I take, I, I do a lot of prep with guys where we're meeting and we're talking beforehand about what to expect. And then we do these seven day retreats um, and that's going really well. Guys are reporting amazing things. So yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's something I'm interested in the, the psychedelic and the plant medicine world. And um, oh, there's just so much to talk about, man. We can yeah. sit for three hours. Yeah. There could be like five podcasts. I feel. Yeah. Like there's conscious relationship stuff, which I've been super yeah. stoked on for the last few years. And I've been doing that with my, my now wife. Um, congrats on recently becoming a husband. Thank you. Yeah. And she, she's like, she's got a whole other side of things, man. Like for women, like she has this thing called rising woman and, um, they put their writing on their website, risingwoman.com and on uh, Instagram. And it's just like blowing up because women identify so deeply with the stuff that Mm -hmm. comes through Shalina and Heather. And I actually had Heather on the podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah. I need to get Shay. She, oh, she's she's the hardest one, man. Look up a podcast with Shalina, and you'll find almost none yeah. online because she, she, you know, uh, she everybody just wants her energy, and she's actually yeah. she's just less. She puts herself out there physically less than mm-hmm. uh, less than I do. So, uh, but we're working on something, her and I, for couples. Cool. So that's happening. So you do you coach men? You lead retreats. When you say men's work, yeah. to somebody listening, like what does that mean? Yeah, people should know about this because there's something happening right now. Mm. Um, there's like a new wave happening where guys, a lot of millennials are waking up to the state of their lives and realizing they're not happy with the level of disconnection they have with other men. And they're like, oh, like... Or they're women. Or they're women. Yeah, and they and they don't know where to look. And they're, they, they see things like... Um, the mankind project and go check it out and then they're like this seems kind of like a outdated but has some good principles and they're they're looking you know Mm -hmm. and so four years ago i joined this uh, men's group here in vancouver called the samurai brotherhood 
And at the time I joined the fourth group or third group that was starting. And it has now grown to like, I think we have 20 squads, 20, 20 groups. And there's like 20 people in each? Uh, about 15 guys in each. So we have over 300 men now. And uh, so I, I'm i a leader of uh, two squads, one online and one in person. I started the online division this year. Mm-hmm. We already have four squads online. I actually sent a dude to your online squad, and he has messaged me a couple times being like, this changed my life. <laughs> Holy shit. It's way better than I thought it would be. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Like, mm-hmm. But it's not because what we're doing is of a level of depth that like guys are craving you know and so it's not just um we don't just get into meetings with each other and and bs and talk about like how to pick up women or like how to win at work like we dig into like what's your ego's story what is the way that you hold back your gifts from the world and from yourself and from your partner and how can we have your back in releasing that? And so we do shadow work. Um, we do some things that verge on therapy, but like not nobody's a trained therapist. So it's just like men holding space for each other. Mm-hmm. And, and really what it is is men sharing the truth of their lives with each other and the rest of the group reflecting that truth back at them. And it's magic what happens. Like guys feel seen, they feel connected to each other. They feel like, oh, I would like die for these guys after a few months of being with them. Mm. And I feel that. And so this thing is spreading like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, we, since we started the online thing, we're starting to create satellite groups in other cities. And we've got one in Buffalo, New York right now that just started. Um, we're working on one in Australia. We've got one in Montreal. And it's it's happening. Oh, so, um, and it's and- not expensive. It's like like... The expense is you bringing your real effort and showing up every week, mm. you know? Yeah. I, I think to the, I was having a conversation yesterday about cost and yeah. cause I'm launching a few things and we're doing events and it's like, what do I charge? What's the price? How do you, how do you sort of sell it in a way? Right. Um, and then I think there's this other side of things, which is like the cost of not doing it. Like, what is the cost of living your life as it is now mm-hmm. for the rest of your life? Like the pain, the misery, the angst, etc. Like, that's a huge cost. Like, yeah. is it worth X amount of dollars a month to make your life drastically and forever better? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And and when a person is at a place where they're not willing to acknowledge that and they, they think it should just be free, they tend to... Uh, not receive the help that you're trying to give them anyways yeah so like people value things that they pay for like the guys in our groups they pay um about a hundred dollars a month at least for the first few months to be a part of the group 25 bucks a meeting not that expensive but those guys have gone out and worked in the world to pay for this group yeah and people value things that they pay for like guys come Mm -hmm. the the attendance rate is very high the commitment level is very high. Guys aren't checked out. They don't show up late. We also have that as a standard, but like, so we have to hold that too. Mm. But I really feel like this thing would not be what it is if it was free. hundred yeah. percent. The way I've heard it described is the more you pay, the more you pay attention. Right. Hmm. And yeah. if you just give the shit away, it's, it's, it's a value exchange. Yeah. Uh, e- even if you go to the supermarket and you see 
a $30 jar of peanut butter next to the $4 jar of peanut butter, you think, ooh, I bet that's really good peanut butter. I we, want that. My <laughs> my family, let's say, is very guilty of that. Yeah. Like, I know Shalina will come home with the most expensive peanut butter. She doesn't do peanut butter, but yeah. if it's a nut butter, like, it, yeah. she will come home with the most expensive one, even if it's not the highest yeah. quality. Because she, she needs just, to talk to my girlfriend. Yeah. So. Yeah. But in addition to the Samurai Brotherhood, like, this shit is a global thing. There's there's Man Talks and Connor Beaton and yeah. Shaver Bohm is Man Uncivilized and Mike Campbell's doing Beyond the Beers and Brian Alexander is doing New Age Gents. And mm-hmm. there's and a the, thing underway and men are starting to really take ownership of ourselves and the way that we impact the world in a way I don't think that's ever happened before. Yeah. Yeah. There's another one called Order of Man. Okay. He's created quite a large group and most of it's online actually yeah yeah like there is something there's something there's something going on yeah yeah and and it's good like i mean i think the me too movement had something to do with it these this stuff's been happening for a long time anyways it's called the mythopoetic men's movement where men form in groups and they they draw life lessons and teachings from myth it really started with this book iron john yeah. Which I think was like in the 80s. This um, Robert Bly wrote Iron John. It's about a, a man encountering a beast in the forest, or a boy encountering a beast in the forest that then takes him to become a man. And it doesn't turn him into a beast, but like a boy has to encounter his beast in order to really yeah. step into manhood. And, and there's like some really cool lessons in that book. And and there's a ton of other myths, obviously, that are very useful for, for men. And so that that grew in the 80s big time there was like the sterling men's movement there was like a few hundred uh just in the city but there's some kind of resurgence happening now where it's like next level yeah the new generation of guys who want real connection and they i mean there's a lot of nice guys that realize like oh like being nice isn't working for me and and there's it's some kind of like weird behavior where i want mommy's love and so i'm like being super nice to women but like women aren't telling me that's what they want yeah i'm like the nicest guy that i know and i'm also miserable yeah yeah like something's wrong and and stepping into a men's circle and and like starting to untie some of those um dysfunctional patterns and and like find your edge in a way where you're not like hurting the world you're actually bringing more to it Mm. you know um guys are just hungry for that right now yeah it's a good way to to phrase it actually and it's just directing energy and giving purpose yeah. and power in a way that's healthy and viable and sustainable for all of us in the long term mm-hmm. i think it's really great what you guys are doing out there yeah thanks man yeah recommended reading for the men's movement the way of the conscious warrior which was written by the guy who started samurai brotherhood pt Mistelberger. Mm-hmm. he just wrote that book he basically wrote it for us he was like okay i've got 300 men now so i'm gonna write these guys a book yeah. and it's awesome um robert Bly's iron john and no more mr nice guy by uh robert glover yeah yeah game changer yeah um this was so good man anything else you want to add to someone listening final words of wisdom where can they find you first of all yeah i'm on i have a website evolvingman.ca i have instagram at evolving man those are my main two portals. Oh, and I've got the podcast, Evolving Man Podcast, which is available everywhere. And um, 
yeah no man I, I really enjoyed our conversation and yeah if any of those things interest people that that we've mentioned along the way then people know where to find me um there's lots going on and uh yeah you know the last thing i'll mention is that i'm also really passionate about young men's initiation okay and i'm i that's something that's not happening enough and we need a like a resurgence of it's that interesting man i almost mentioned that about four minutes ago because in other cultures and throughout history that you have these initiation movements where it's like, okay, now you are a man. Yeah. And in our society, we don't necessarily have that. No, we don't. Agreed upon healthy event, which marks it. And then other than like informal sorts of things like, oh, you kissed a girl. Yeah. You had sex, etc. Yeah. And that is supremely unhealthy and can be dangerous. It does not fit. It yeah. does not fit the, the, the mold because like for a guy to really feel initiated, he needs to go away be challenged intensely find himself find himself and then return to the community be welcomed home and so in some ways like i was lucky because i went to rehab and that was like my initiation Mm -hmm. i really matured in there i had a lot Mm -hmm. to learn still but like yeah i felt in some ways like i was ahead of my peers when i was 20 Mm. but there there are yeah i just want to put that bug in people's ears like there are initiation things that are happening for young men in certain places like i know of one in california called the young men's ultimate weekend and it happens once in august per year Mm -hmm. uh and there's one in the vancouver area here called the young men's adventure weekend it's for guys aged uh, 12 to 18 and it's entirely put on by the men who decide to fork over their time and money to make it happen the young men pay as well Interesting. For they so the fees are split between the men and the young men, mm-hmm. but it's like fifty guys, fifty men and fifty young men head out into the bush into like a total like in the bush uh, area for forty eight hours, and there's like fire and there's ceremony, there's sweat lodge, and it's like challenging for these young guys, but mm-hmm. it is super cool. So people can find that online, and I'm involved with them too. So oh, fun, yeah. You've been out on an adventure already? Yeah, I went out last year and was like, oh man, this needs to happen. This needs to be happening every yeah. every week of the summer. And Isn't like, it fun? You have these moments where you're like, oh, this is the future. Yeah. Oh, I see. This is going to be everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I sure hope so. Tangent, but I had that for the first time when I used an iPhone. I was like, <laughs> oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah, me too. This is going to be everywhere. <laughs> and then the second time was when I first used virtual reality. I put on the the goggles and it was a roller coaster game. Yeah. And my my palms were sweating and I was freaked out and I had that same insight of like, oh, okay, this is going to change everything. Everything. And I feel that way about men's work in general Mm -hmm. personal development in general. But even what you just alluded to there, I could see how that would be a really powerful elixir for personal evolution, but also just like a global change you know for the better yeah it would really benefit a lot of people yeah anyway you're a gem thank you for what you do proud of how far you've come and i appreciate you sharing your story today man thanks brother Truly. thanks for having me on you too yeah. it was an honor yeah all right we just smashed the podcast peace out so good right interesting dude big brain and so inspiring to see how far he's come from the life that he led as a teenager. Anything is possible, my friend. Anything at all. Thank you for being here. I appreciate your time and energy. I appreciate you listening to these words flow so gently and effortlessly into your ear bones. I've included links to the books that Ben 
mentioned at the end of the podcast. You can find those in the show notes. And again, you can follow him online on Instagram at Evolving Man. His partner's site is Evolve. Oh, it's not Evolving Woman. Jesus. It's called Rising Woman. And her co-founder, Heather Pinnell, was also on the podcast. You can find her episode a few back. That was a really powerful discussion. And uh, that's it. Thanks for the five-star reviews. Thanks for sharing it on the Instagram. Thanks for the kind words and the voice notes. You are special, and I adore you. And I'm proud of who you are. Keep going.